Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, this um, training is going to be on what I call broken sexuality. Okay, so we're going to hit a number of aspects of sexuality because we want to understand God's heart with sexuality in general. Okay, all right, so broken sexuality is at the root of much of our national trouble. Okay, and there's a reason why God is so strict about sex. I mentioned it in the last session, but it's because of babies. All right. And this is hard because, you know, when I was in um, high school, I had a girlfriend. This was before I was really strongly walking with the Lord. And um, I didn't understand why the Bible was strict about sex. You know, like nobody ever took me aside and, and explained the rationale as to why. And um, here I am now, you know, m- many years later, and I feel like I have a much better understanding about why God is so strict about sex, okay? So healthy sexuality is life-giving, enjoyable, and produces the greatest treasures on earth, right, which are people, okay? And so what we're going to look at here is, number one, we have to understand what a broken sexuality has done to America, right? So we talked in our last session about the 1960s, about the sexual revolution, what you know, the state today is that many, many people are now growing up in broken homes. And what you have to understand, you know, whenever you're doing, you know, if you're doing pastoral ministry for almost anybody, you've got to go back into their past, right? If you're going to minister to somebody effectively, you've got to go back into their past because the way that we um, grow up in our family environment is the natural way that we start to relate to the rest of the world. Okay, like the way I put it is, you know, I didn't know. You know, when you grow up, you just have your parents. I mean, that's like what you know. You don't know that other people have it different. (laughs) You know what I mean? But when you get older, you start to see, oh, that family is a little bit different. They do it different, all right? Or that family has a mother and a father, right? Or that family, you know, like you start to see the differences and um, you start becoming a lot more aware, right, of the weaknesses in your family dynamic. Okay. Now here's part of the truth. All of our families have weaknesses. Okay. Unless your parents were Jesus and Mrs. Jesus, right? Like your parents were imperfect. Yes. Right. Your parents were imperfect and all of those, um, all of their imperfections and weaknesses directly affect you as a child. Okay. They directly affect you. All right. The way our psychology works is that when we get hurt, our natural instinct is to protect ourselves from getting hurt in the same way again. Okay, this is true for everybody. Okay, so when we get hurt, what we'll do is we'll start to form walls in our hearts. All right, and those walls keep us from getting hurt in the same way, but they also keep us from being able to love. Does that make sense? So when you're doing inner healing, what you have to do is you've got to get through those walls. Number one, you've got to become aware of some of those walls. Right, and those walls take they manifest in a lot of different ways. Right, so sometimes like one of the one of the classic ones is like annoyance. Right, uh, a lot of people don't understand at the root of their annoyance with people is oftentimes some type of wound. Right, and that annoyance is a barrier to push them away from that type of person. They sense a certain thing that'll it'll push them away from them. Right, uh, but there's lots of those types of things like disgust. Right, or like you just get you just have no patience with some some people. Right, or something like that. These are all different types of heart walls, and all of us have them. 
Okay, all of us have to work through them in our lives, right? And a huge part of becoming a mature person and being able to love well is being able to work through our own barriers, right, to love and our own um, uh, heart walls and all this kind of stuff. So what I'm getting at is that when you're a kid, everything hurts you, okay? Kids are so vulnerable, right? Like, they don't know, right? They don't know. Like, if I go to a random kid and I go, hey, kid, you are stupid, right? You are so stupid, right? You're so dumb, right? What's going to happen to that kid? That kid's going to start crying, right? Why? What's happening? I'm declaring something to them and they have no defense against it, right? It's just going to go right in, right? And when kids go through traumatic experiences like that, that would be a type of traumatic experience, you know, um, they're going to grow up with, they're going to, they're going to develop strongholds, which are lies, right? In their minds that are formed like that. And um, the problem is, our parents are given to us to guide us and to safeguard us, to protect us, right, when we're young. So all of us need perfect parents, but none of us have perfect parents, right? That's one of the brokennesses of this world, okay? But to the degree that our parents can't guide us and nurture us and teach us wisdom and all this kind of stuff, we're going to grow up messed up, okay? And that's the story for all of us to some degree, okay? So it's not to cast blame, but... Uh, I think we all understand, like when we're dealing with issues of especially fatherlessness, um, I had to deal in my own life with um, feelings of abandonment, right? And like I always related, when I related to um, like adult males, this is really it's like adult white males, I would always get kind of insecure in my heart, right? I remember one time when I was um, pastoring, when we started pastoring at the Ark, there's another pastor in the region um, who invited us to come to his house and... He wanted to help us. And I remember every time I'd get around this guy, I would get so insecure. And he'd be like, ask me questions. I'd be giving him like one word answers. You know, like it's just that that insecurity um, would be so stark, right? And that's because in my relationship with my own dad, um, he always felt very distant, but he was there. Do you know what I mean? My dad was there. It's not like he wasn't there, but he, like I never had like a strong friendship with my dad, right? He's not that kind of a person. And I never, you know, I never felt strongly affirmed by him, all these different things. You know, I'm sure you guys have felt similar types of things in relationships in your life, right? And um, and so I had to work through a lot of my own healing in this area, right? But obviously, what I've had to work through with a dad who is there but emotionally distant is so much easier to work through than somebody who literally has not had a dad when they're in their, in their life growing up, Right. It's so difficult. It's so hard. And that's why God is so strict about marriage. He's so strict about who you sleep with because he understands that if, we, if we're if we not serious about sex, then what will happen is the children are the ones that pay the price. Okay? The children are the ones that pay the price. Okay? So today, about 50% of marriages end in divorce today. Okay? 25% in 1960. That's double. Right? That's double the rate. Okay? Only 69% of kids live with two parents, okay? And that was 88% in 1960. About 32% of adults are unmarried. That was 23% in 1950. Married couples make up 68% of all families with children. That was 93% in 1950. And the average of uh, average today is 2.5 people in a household. In 1960, it was 3.3, okay? So what we've seen is we've seen radical movements in all of these areas of family throughout American society, okay? And when we're talking about sexuality, this is part of the cause and part of the result here, right? Now, the great irony is that 
freer sex produces less sex. Okay, we actually see this um, not just here in America, but all over. So this is from the Institute of Family Studies in 2018. Women who reported one sexual partner over the course of their lifetimes were the most likely to be very happy in their marriages. That's 64%. The least likely to be very happy were women who had six to 10 lifetime sexual partners. It's 52%. For men, the same held true. 71% of men who reported one lifetime sexual partner reported being very happy in their marriages. Just 60% of men with five lifetime sexual partners reported such happiness. Okay. In fact, this is what you're going to see. The more sexual partners you've had, well, usually it, the the... The marriages that last the longest, right, have had no sex outside of marriage. Generally speaking, that's a trend, okay, in statistical studies, all right? If you've had one sexual partner outside of marriage, meaning you slept with somebody before marriage or during marriage or something like that, then that was they had the next highest rate of success, okay? That trend continues until you've had about five sexual partners or more, then it's all about the same. Does that make sense? But those stats hold up in marriage. And there's a reason why, right? There's a reason why our hearts naturally connect in sex in a way that is that is sacred that's the whole idea of sex it's holy right and you're giving your hearts and the thing is gender matters in this right men are designed in such a way that they can like you know if there's hypothetically one man and like 20 20 women on you know, a deserted island, right? They could repopulate the island. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like one man can impregnate 20 women, right? But 20, man, 20 men and one woman doesn't work, right? She can only have one baby. Does that make sense? Women's physiology was designed in such a way that they're, it's, they're much more protective over their baby. Does that make sense? And they can only have so many, right? So what you're going to see is that men can have sex in a way that there's less emotional connection but it's much, much harder for women, okay? And that matters because especially in our culture, you know, it used to be, it used to be like, oh yeah, we expect men to have sex, but then women have to be chased, right? And then like this feminist movement came along and said, hey, why, why is that okay? Why is it okay for men to have lots of sex and not women have lots of sex? Why can't women be free and have lots of sex, right? Well, and the answer is to some degree because the physiology is somewhat different here. Does this make sense, right? The psychology is somewhat different here. And what happens is a lot of women especially feel violated, feel um, assaulted, even in cases where there's no clear assault taking place. And, and the idea here is that it, there's a sense in which it's, it's more sacred for women a lot of times in a way that men don't really understand, okay? Now, I'm not trying to draw a huge line here because there's also some of these feelings for men also. But what I am trying to say is that what I've seen in my, you know, in my ministry is I've counseled people through things. I have counseled so many young women through sexual trauma, okay? And it's it's very common. It's very common for women to feel, you know, abused and used in relationships. And um and I just see lots I see lots of people damaged in these things. So there's this there's this narrative out there today where like, yeah, you can have sex and it's great. It's healthy, right? In fact, you see a lot of this stuff um in, you know, in these things for younger people, like explore your sexuality. It's a good thing. It's healthy. You should do it. And I'll, I'll tell you, no, it destroys your ability to have a family. That's what it does. It destroys your ability to have a healthy marriage. That's what it does. Okay. And these liars, right, who are saying this, they don't care what the data says. They don't care what the data says 
right? And what it really is, it's a rebelliousness. It's a spirit of rebelliousness because God gave us these commands thousands of years ago. Humans have lived by them in almost every successful civilization, and our generation thinks that we are the exception to the rule, you know? And it's so maddening because the ones who are paying for it, like people don't understand the damage that they're doing to their lives. They don't understand the damage that they're doing to their future marriage. They don't understand the damage that's being done to children. Like nobody plans to have an abortion, right? It's not like, oh yeah, when I get older, I'm gonna have an abortion, right? Nobody plans for that, right? What they think is that they can have sex, it's gonna be okay, and they get surprised when they get pregnant. And this is the lie of contraceptives. See, in the 1960s and 70s, there was this narrative that in the past, people had to be careful about sex, but now we have condoms, we have technology in such a way that we don't have to be as careful. They did, because then they would have had all these babies. But now, we'll, ne we'll never have an another unwanted pregnancy, okay? That was the lie in the 1960s and 70s, okay? Can I just tell you, it is precisely the opposite of what those people say. We have more unwanted pregnancies than ever before in our nation's history, okay? Despite the use of contraceptives. And that's because People don't understand how contraceptives work, okay? What this is, this is from the New York Times. I took this in 2014. Um, they published a study that was done. All right, this is typical use of this particular contraceptive over a 10-year period of sexual activity, okay? Meaning, if you are sexually active and you use condoms, male condoms, all right? If you're sexually active for 10 years, there's an 86% chance you're gonna get pregnant. If you're using a condom every time, okay? 86% chance that you're going to get pregnant. This is perfect condom usage. If you use a condom perfectly every time, then it's, you know, it's like 14%. It's really low, right? But it's almost impossible to use a condom perfectly every time, okay? People mess up. They make mistakes. Like, you know, they put it on the wrong way and like some semen gets on the wrong side of it. That happens all the time and stuff like this. So this is actual typical usage. This is what we actually see with those who actually use condoms, right, regularly. 86% chance of getting pregnant over a 10-year period of being sexually active, okay? And that's not the exception. It's not like condoms really suck, right? Female condoms have a 91% chance. Withdrawal, which is ridiculous, is 92% chance, right? Sponge, fertility, diaphragm, 72% chance. You're probably going to get pregnant if you're sexually active for 10 years. Does this make sense? Like, it, this is why people get pregnant. They don't expect to get pregnant, right? They don't expect to get pregnant, but it happens, and now you're put into a place where you ha now have responsibility for a child that you did not sign up to be responsible with this other person for, right? And now that creates a crisis. And this is where most people get an abortion, okay? This is where most people will get an abortion, all right? Because it's hard, okay? I, I mentioned this earlier. It's hard. Marriage is hard if you get married to the perfect person, okay? Who doesn't exist, by the way, all right? Marriage is really hard in general, okay? It is doubly, triply hard, right, when you feel obligated to get married to somebody that you did not sign up for, that they did not sign up for. It is very difficult, especially in this age, okay? Why? Because we're rich, right? That's the difference. In the past, you know, you didn't have the option. You'd have to get married, and you'd have to stay together because you couldn't financially make it, but now we're so rich that you can kind of financially make it. We have government programs to help care for people, you know, if they're single and have a child, 
We have all this help available. So what's happened is all the incentives now are pushing people to not be able to work through the difficulties of marriage. Okay? Marriage is super duper hard. People don't understand this. And but they still want sex. And I understand. Literally, God hardwired us to have sex. Okay? It's not like you can just turn that switch off, right? Like, you know, uh, you can't turn the switch off. The solution is to get married. All right? I would tell my college students, right? You can have as much sex as you want, right? You can you can have sex every single day if your partner is okay with it, okay? But the rule is you have to get married first, right? That's the rule. But now, if your if your attitude is like, all right, I want the sex, but I don't want the marriage, well, then you're in rebellion. Does that make sense? That's what God warns about, and that's what produces all of this. Okay, all these statistics that I shared with you guys in the last ses- session about fatherlessness—they're caused by people refusing to get married. That's what's at the heart of it. You can get married, right? You can get married today. I'm cool with it. It may not be why the wisest thing, right? But it's way wiser than having sex and not being married. Does this make sense? You can get married today. You're not breaking any of God's laws. God's okay with it. Like, yes, get married. But now you're obligating yourself, right? You're obligating yourself to be in a committed relationship. And guess what? That's like so important for like 90% of people, all right? So many people need to be trapped into a relationship where they cannot escape, okay? And I say this especially for men. Men, for men, marriage is the thing that tames men. Okay, because our natural tendency is to be selfish. All right, and that's true for all of us. All of us are naturally inclined to be selfish and think about ourselves. You know what marriage does? It forces you to not care so much about yourself, right? It forces you to actually care for a spouse, a partner, and then it forces you to actually care for your children. And you know what has to happen when that happens? You have to change, right? It's not an easy process. It's a difficult process, but it's a necessary process. And the problem was in the past, in previous generations, that was the expectation that was put on everybody. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Today, no, you do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, right? That's, that's humanism, right? If it makes you happy, you should be able to do it, right? Well, who's suffering? Your kids are suffering. That's who's suffering, Okay. Your kids are suffering, and all the kids that are growing up in broken families today, those are the ones who are suffering. All the ones who are being aborted, right? Those are the kids that are being suffering. And you know what? Here's the truth. Nobody can say that a fetus is not a person. Nobody can say that, right? But what people want is they don't want it to be a person. That's what it comes down to. They don't want the fetus to be a person. Because if it's not a person, then I can justify Aborting a child, right? And what what abortion does is it upholds the whole idea of free sex, of casual sex. If abortion is killing an actual person, then we can't have free sex as a society. That's what's at stake, all right? That's what people are fighting for. Because the reality is that, you know, it obviously is a person, (laughs) right? A fetus is obviously a person, right? We protect baby rhinoceroses, right? We protect eagle eggs, right? We protect all of these things, but we don't protect a human fetus. And that's because the incentive, if we protect the human fetus, then people cannot have sex with people that they want to have sex with. That's really what this comes down to. Am I making sense? Okay. Now we need to speak some grace because guess what? You and I, we're all broken people, 
All right, I don't know about you. I've struggled with my own sexual temptations in life. All right, we have all struggled with that. I'm assuming, okay, because it's a real struggle. All right, but you have to understand that what's the biblical answer? Get married. Get married. Don't be like, well, you know, I want to get my master's degree and I want to visit Rome and I want to do all this stuff and then I get married. Then you cannot have sex. All right, that's it. That's what you're saying. All right. You can do that if you can keep to celibacy. If you cannot keep to celibacy, what, is, what does scripture say? If you're burning with desire, you should get married. All right? And my understanding of Paul is Paul's not like, oh my gosh, if you're such a loser and you're burning with desire, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's just being honest. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. If you're, if you're burning with desire, go get married. Right? I remember I once heard that from a pastor, and he was like, some of you should get married. And I was like, oh, like, it's just so easy, right? Like, you just snap your finger. and. But honestly, I'll say, I'll, I'll say this. I think a lot of times our standards are way too high. Like we're looking for like this really perfect person. You know, arranged marriages have a much higher rate of success. Yeah. You know why? Because you, you, you go into an arranged marriage not expecting to have the perfect person. Okay? All right. That's the difference. Right? When you expect the other person to be perfect you are going to get disillusioned, all right? You will get disillusioned, okay? Because guess what? We all got issues. We all got issues. We all got problems, all right? We all got stuff that will drive you crazy. That's part of marriage, okay? And so I, I tend to tell people, look, all right, this isn't part of the talk, but I think this is important, okay? In Israel today, ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, all right? These are the highly religious, you know, super Jews, right? These guys have, like, an average of, like, 10 kids per family, all right? Right now, they're, I think, like, 20% of the nation, something like that, maybe 15% of the nation. They're projected within a generation, like, 30 to 40 years, they're projected to be 50% of the nation. Yeah. Why? Because other Jews are very secular, and the more secular are, the fewer babies you have. That's how this works. The more religious you are, the more babies you have, okay? They don't have babies. Other Jews don't have babies. But the ultra-Orthodox have babies. They have lots of babies, right? When we're talking about discipling the nation, you know who disciples the nation? The group that has the most babies and disciples them. Disciples their own children well, okay? We're always talking about how to convert other people. And I get that. I want to convert people too, all right? But I'm just saying, if we're going to be practical about this, the way to do it is have lots of babies and disciple them well. Okay, that's by the way how I don't know if you understand the, the stats about um, Europe right now. Europe right now, the average Muslim family in Europe has something like seven children per family. Okay, and they're immigrating in. Okay, the average non Muslim European family has like 1.5 or something like that children per family. They're dying out. This is this is what we don't know why because when your culture starts to believe that life is for you, well, then you don't want to have a freaking kid, right? Kids are hard. They're expensive, right? They cost your time. You can't go travel like you want to. You can't go out on a date when you want to, right? All this kind of stuff. So if life is for you, what starts to happen? You, you don't want kids anymore, right? And then you know what happens? You become a terrible person. I'm serious. Because having kids is the primary way that you learn to become a loving person, okay? It's the primary way that you learn to stop thinking so much about yourself and start to prioritize somebody else in your life. Right? It's through family. This is by God's design. Right? So 
this idea, you know, this is why I say, like, to, to young people, it should be a goal of yours to have kids. You know, Jews consider, be fruitful and multiply. That was the command given to Adam. They consider that a mandate from the Lord. That's God's command to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a command, right? I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. I would just put the caveat on it that you can have spiritual children, right? So have physical children, have spiritual children, and sometimes the Lord will call you to forego having physical children so you can have more spiritual children, something like that, okay? But the, the, the mandate is still the same. Have children, be fruitful, and multiply, okay? Especially, look, in our social media age, everybody wants to be famous, right? Like, everybody wants to have influence over all these people. Can I tell you, this is, this is fake crap, okay? This is fake crap, okay? You know what real influence is? I'm, I'm serious. Whoever fathers the best has the greatest influence. We're all so focused on having wide influence when I feel like what God is focused on is having deep influence. All right? Jesus' strategy was not to try and like take over all of Israel. His strategy was to disciple 11 men really well. Okay? And they made disciples themselves because you have to bear fruit through generations. Does this make sense? Okay? So... Don't don't buy the whole, like, and I tell you, this happens to so many pastors and leaders. They start selling out because they want more influence and a larger Instagram account and all this stuff. I'm, I'm not saying that those things are necessarily evil. I'm just saying they don't compare to actually having real spiritual children that consider you their heroes because you poured into their lives in a way where you actually cared about them. All right? That's, in my heart, that's what I want. I don't want more famous speakers. I want fathers that care about people and that actually pour into their lives because they care about them. All right? This, and, and when we're talking about spiritual fathering, this, this is what we're talking about with homosexuality, okay? We're going to get into this a little bit, okay? Because in my experience, now, I have to say a little bit of, of, of a caveat here, okay? I personally have not struggled with same-sex attraction, Okay? And I think that there is a greater authority that you get when you personally struggle through something and you overcome, right? I think you speak with a greater authority. So I want to say in humility, this is, you know, my understanding of somebody who's not personally struggled with it, but as somebody who has walked with many people who have struggled with it, okay? When we started the ARC, one of our leaders at the ARC um, had, a, uh, had a testimony where she grew up transgender and she tried to commit suicide three times. She had a radical encounter with Jesus. She got delivered. It was an incredible testimony. And so because of her testimony, we had a lot of people in our ministry who struggled with same-sex attraction. It would probably be like a quarter of our people at least, okay? And so I've walked with a number of people through this struggle through the years, okay? So here's number one. If we're talking about homosexuality. Number one, we're all broken, okay? Literally every single person is broken. Everyone is struggling with desires that they don't want, Okay, so if you struggle with same-sex attraction, we have to be really clear. God loves you, okay, and you are welcome in our community because we're all just a bunch of broken people trying to follow Jesus. Amen? Okay, so secondly, this accusation that's popular in our culture that the church is full of homophobia, I have literally never seen it in my life, okay? I'm sure it's out there. I was in California, you know, I don't know how it's like in Tennessee or Oklahoma or, you know, you know, who knows, Okay. But I'm just saying, I've been around Christians, you know, my whole life, pretty much. I've literally never met one that had, like, a real hatred towards gay people or disgust or anything like that. Never in my life, okay? And I say that because that accusation is so common against Christians, 
right? Oh yeah, Christians, they freaking hate, you know, gay people, God hates gay people, all this kind of stuff. None of that is true, okay? None of that is true, all right? Now, what we have to make a distinction between is what the way the world speaks about homosexuality and the way the Bible speaks about it, okay? The world says that people who feel same-sex attraction are born that way, number one, okay? There's been no evidence of this. There's no scientific evidence that you are born. Nobody's born sexually attracted, okay? There's, you know, you develop that in life, okay? So this idea that you're born with it is simply not true. They've done studies on identical twins. Same gene pattern, everything. There's no commonality when it comes to homosexuality, okay? So th these things are not true, okay? This idea that you're born that way, all right? Number two, the world says, or this narrative says, that it's static and unchangeable, like your race, right? You're either gay or you're not gay, okay? At least that was the narrative before. They've shifted, they start, you know, they always shift it, um, you know? But the truth is that's never been true. That's never been true, okay? The reality is sexuality is fluid, okay? Sexuality is fluid. What we tend to see in studies is that men tend to be more one way or the other, okay? Women tend to be much more fluid in their sexuality, but everybody can have changes in their sexuality, all right? And in particular, we can see this when you start to desensitize. Like, if you start watching a lot of pornography, what starts to happen? You become desensitized. The things that turned you on don't turn you on as much anymore. So you have to start getting kinkier stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about a little bit, right? You start, your, your, your attractions start getting kinkier and kinkier, and you need, you need, your, your, it starts to shift. It starts to change your sexuality. You start being attracted to things that you were not before. Does this make sense? All I'm getting at here is that it's not like your race. Okay, it's not, all right? Nobody is claiming that if you're black, you can become white, okay? But they're claiming, right, if you're gay, you cannot become straight and vice versa. And that's simply not true, okay? Sexuality is fluid. It does change. It can become stronger. It can become weaker. As somebody who's struggled with sexual temptation in my life, I can say I struggle a lot less with it now than I did when I was in my 20s right? It's like something that you can grow in. Your physiology changes also, right? But yeah, you can get freedom in this area like in a lot of other areas, okay? Number three, the idea that it's your identity, okay? This is the big one, all right? In, there is incredible pressure in our culture that if you're gay, you need to identify as gay, all right? Meaning if you feel same-sex attraction, that's not just something about you. It's not like you have red hair, right? It's who you are. There's a push to make it part of your identity. I will tell you, that is the number one thing that will jack you up as a Christian, okay? If you start to identify as gay, that will mess you up, right? Because it's simply not true. We already talked about how it's fluid. It can change throughout the course of your life, right? How you're not born that way. Our sexual, our sexual proclivities can shift in our lives. But if you identify with it, now what you're doing is you're saying, this is part of who I am. What it's implicitly saying is I cannot change and I should not change. Does this make sense? Okay. And this is all the pressure in our society. The whole idea of coming out of the closet, right? Coming out of the closet, what you're doing is you're making a public declaration that I am gay. This is who I am. It is incredibly damaging if you do that, okay? Because it's simply, it's simply not the truth. And by the way, do you know that 40% now of Gen Zers identifies LGBTQ? It is insanity. It's insanity, okay? 40% of Gen Z identifies now. This is a recent Barna poll that I just read like not that long ago, okay? Now, George Barna, who did the poll, says that it's it's not that all of those people are engaging in same-sex activity per se, but there's so many like social benefits now, 
right? If you if I if you identify as gay, it opens doors in many cases, right? It's like people respect you more, right? Or give you it's like there's incentive now to identify as LGBTQ. All right, so this is this is what's going on. This is a war, by the way, because God is serious about sexuality. So we have to understand what does the Bible say about sexuality? Okay. Now, look, I'm just going to be blunt. The Bible universally condemns sexuality, homosexuality. There's not one verse in the Bible that says anything positive about same-sex attraction. It's all negative, okay? So I'm just going to take you through three of the big ones. There's a lot, though, okay? Romans 1. This is the idea that God gave them over to their sin, right? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another, with other men, excuse me, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error, okay? So this is speaking of homosexuality coming upon a culture as a judgment, a sign of judgment, all right? The idea is that home, the existence of homosexuality shows that God has given over that people to their sinful desires, and it's a judgment in Scripture. Okay, in fact, there's a there's an academic named Camille Paglia, I believe her name is, and she has done studies on the fall of several civili- civilizations. And what she's found is that the acceptance of transgenderism in historic societies has been a precursor to their civilizational collapse. All right, yeah, yeah. It's kind of insane. And she's, I believe she's LGBTQ, right? Yeah, right? All right, here's Leviticus 18.22. This is from the Law of Moses. Right? Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Okay, now pause. Because whenever I quote this verse, people will come back at me and say, oh, that's Old Testament. We don't follow the Old Testament anymore. All right, uh, can I just say, my strong recommendation is you don't say that about anything in the Old Testament. Okay, you should understand why we follow certain biblical commands or laws from the law of Moses and not others, right? You still follow the Ten Commandments, I assume, for the most part, right? Like, why do we accept certain ones and not others? Okay, and the reason is because some were only designed to apply to the nation of Israel. So, if you're not a Jew, it's not; it was never supposed to apply to you. Does that make sense? Okay, so Leviticus 18 is different than other commands in the law of Moses because it's specifically, number one, it's about sexual issues. The whole chapter is about sexual issues, and it specifically says this at the end of the chapter. It says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, speaking of all the sexual sins there, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. Okay? For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. What God is saying is that when sexual sin runs rampant in a culture, he judges the culture and gives their land to another people. All right? Why? Why? Because of the incredible pain that the sexual sin is causing. Okay? The incredible destruction, which we're going to get into in a little bit. All right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, or, you do not know, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Okay, this is important. Paul pleases says, look, that's who you were, okay? But you're not that anymore. Does that make sense? I have a real problem with people who identify as gay Christians, right? No, that's who you were, 
all right? If you identified that way, okay? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, okay? We are not to identify with our sin. That's not who we are if we are in Christ. We might struggle with that. All of us are struggling with sin, okay? But there's a huge difference between saying, I struggle with this sin, and that's who I am, okay? All right, now here's the part that's going to be the most controversial. I think there's a clear link between sexual abuse and homosexuality, okay? I'm not saying that everyone who feels same-sex attraction has been abused, but there is for sure a high correlation, okay? A 2009 report prepared for a bisexual health summit revealed that 74% of bisexuals has been sexually abused as a child, okay? 43% of males with same-sex attraction reported sexual activity with another male during the ages of 10 to 12 versus 9% of males with opposite-sex attraction, okay? Another study reported that 58% of male adolescents who later became same-sex attracted suffered sexual abuse as children, while 90% who did not suffer sexual abuse did not, okay? One of the most salient findings was that 46% of the homosexual men, in contrast to 7% of the heterosexual men, reported homosexual molestation. Okay? Oh, here's, I do have a quote by Camille Paglia. This is another one. Explained candidly by the lesbian, feminist, and academic Camille Paglia, quote, every single gay person I know has some sort of drama going on back in childhood. Something was happening that we're not allowed to ask about anymore. Okay? She was speaking of bad relationships with parents as well as sexual abuse or other factors. All right, George Takai, if you guys know him, he, he, he's the Star Trek, old Star Trek actor, but he's a famous gay actor, right? This was his quote about when he was molested, right, as an adolescent boy. He says, quote, it was both wonderful and scary and kind of intimidating and delightful. I mean, all those opposites, right? Like, th- so this is part of the problem here, okay? Gay activists are constantly pushing to lower the age of consent, Okay. What that means is they would want to make it legal to have sex with younger and younger people, right? This should bother us, okay? Michel Foucault, who's like the godfather of queer theory, right, argued for the eradication of all age of consent laws. He wanted to get, of all, get rid of all age of consent laws. Okay, Gail Rubin, author of founding document of queer theory, thinking sex, 50% of article argues for boy lovers, Like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it is difficult to find offenders for their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation. Okay? Not one prominent queer theorist has ever spoken out against pedophilia. Never. Okay? And this is a respected field of academia now. Okay? This is a respected field of academia. What I am telling you is that there is a link between sexual abuse and homosexuality. And I've seen that with the people that I've walked through. Many of them, if not all of them, have had stories of being molested or being abused in their adolescence, okay? It's very common, okay? Now, I'm not going to say that's everybody, okay? Because I have, I feel like I have talked to a couple of people who have not had that, okay? Um, But it is very common, all right? So, what I'm getting at here, okay, this is hard. First of all, I looked up, I found those stats Back in the mid 2000s, in like I don't, I want to say like 2007, 2008, something like that. This information was published online. There were studies online that showed all this information. I looked for that information a number of years ago. It is gone. It is scrubbed from the internet. Okay. In fact, if you try and find any of this, what you will find, everything links back now to studies on sexuality done at one of the UCs. I think it's UC Davis, right? And they all say that there is zero correlation between sexual abuse and homosexuality. 
They all say that now. And I'm like, no, I read those studies. I read those studies. Don't freaking lie to me, you freaking liars. Okay. I I don't I don't trust I don't trust the universities. I don't trust Google for sure. Google's always downranking everything I actually want to know about, right? I don't trust these institutions at all anymore. And I just tell you from my walking with people and hearing their stories, I can tell you that there's almost always a link here. Okay, and I, I want to say that in in love and humility because what we're what what I'm talking about here is that I feel like there is a link between abuse and this manifestation. And what we have is in our culture this agenda to say there's nothing wrong with it. And I'm like, what are we covering up? Like seriously, what kind of predator what kind of predator behavior are we covering up? Why isn't there a demand to find out all this type of abuse and putting these people in jail and punishing them for this? Why are we covering this up as a society? And it angers me, right? Because I know the pain that these young people have gone through. And this is, you know, this is, this is the hard part about it. Because when you're abused, it warps your desires. It warps your desires. It changes you into the very thing that abuses you. This is like the horror of this, right? And so... There's this, you know, this idea that, oh no, we shouldn't worry about, you know, gay teachers being around kids. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. No, I am going to worry about it. It's not that I'm sure that you're a pedophile, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But I think there is a link here. And if you talk to a lot of these people who have become same-sex attracted, they'll tell you about those stories of being molested when they were young, all right? And look, I just think this is, there's something really dangerous and sinister and nasty to this thing, okay? And it's really gross. Like, this is something that we should, we should be okay actually finding out about, right? But if I say stuff like this in any public forum, it's the same thing. People will, like, throw stones at me, all this kind of, kind of stuff, right? And I'm like, I just, I don't care anymore, right? I don't care. Throw your stones, right? But I'm, at the end of the day, we're going to sit before the judgment seat of God, and I think God is going to be like, why did you allow this? Why did you celebrate this? We're going to have to answer to the Lord for all this kind of stuff. And he's thinking about all the children that are being abused and molested. And I want to say, look, it's not just about homosexuality here. When we're talking about sexuality, we're talking about unwanted children at its core. Okay? We're talking about a, a society that doesn't want children anymore, and when it has a child, it doesn't see it as something to be celebrated, but it's something to be mourned and trying to get got rid of, right? This is the opposite of what the biblical data is. Like, when mothers in the Bible had babies, it was like such a big deal. It was like the most glorious thing. They would be tormented if they couldn't have a baby, right? Because in their culture, this was considered like so important. And I just want to say, I think that's right. Like, to me, I don't feel like I should be impressed, you know, that you went to Harvard and you got a medical degree and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's good. It shows you worked hard. I, yeah, and there is something noble about that. I'm not trying to disqualify all of it. But look, I'm much more impressed by somebody that loves well, okay? I'm much more impressed by a father that raises children and clearly loves them and is doing it right, right? And I got to say, I think God is more impressed by that, okay? So in our culture that celebrates all of this you know, all this personal accolade stuff, 
I think I think we're missing what's really valuable, right? I think we, we should be glorifying our people who love well. Come on, that's that's what the Bible's trying to tell us about. That's what we should honor, right? And look, I'm I'm not I, I feel this way about everything. I'm not impressed by celebrity pastors that can speak really good. Congratulations, you have a gift. All right. I'm much more impressed by the pastor that really loves people. Okay. And look, a lot of times those people don't speak good. All right. A lot of times their church is a lot smaller. You know, the size of the church, it's almost always directly correlated to the, how well the speaker speaks. That's what it comes down to. If you have a great speaking gift, you can have a big church. There's other factors, but they're minor factors, right? That's the major factor. Okay. And I'm like, look, I've met a lot of pastors that aren't great speakers, but they love people. All right, and I think on the day of judgment, God's not going to be like, man, your church was only like 100 people. Jeez, why couldn't you do better, right? I don't think that's what God's going to do, right? But that's, that's how we do it to some degree now, right? And I think it's part of this same misunderstanding about what's really valuable, what's really, what characteristics should we really be honoring in our society? Does this make sense? Okay, now some quick rebuttals because I hear some of this stuff. You know, Jesus quote unquote, never condemned homosexuality. All right, there, by the way, there is a big push for churches to embrace, you know, be full LGBT inclusive, okay? I don't know how it is in wherever you guys grew up. In California, it's like everywhere, okay? It is everywhere. You know, I obviously am kind of outspoken on this kind of thing. Um, you know, we had some books. One of the books I'd recommend if you're looking for a book on all this kind of stuff is Can You Be Gay and Christian by Michael Brown? Okay. We had like three or four copies in our library. I remember, um, I, I grabbed one of the copies in our church's library cause I was going to, I was doing some research on something and I looked and inside somebody had folded a piece of paper with a message and it, it was basically like, Hey, this church hates gay people essentially. Right. And like, if you want, you know, a church that really loves you for who you are, you know, you can go to this website and find this church here. And like, and I was like, my God, they're planting stuff, you know, in my church's library and stuff like that, right? But like, that's that's real, right? That is that that kind of thing is, is happening, and um, we're dealing with this. So there's a big debate over what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality. Okay, the most popular argument is number one: Jesus never condemned homosexuality. Okay, that's true. He doesn't specifically say homosexuality is sin is in the Gospels. We don't see that. All right, but he does affirm number one: traditional marriage. Right, Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Well, th- well, sorry, sorry, sorry. He does it from traditional marriage. Let's look at the second verse, Matthew nineteen. Or it says, "Haven't you read?" He replied, "That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." Right. That is Jesus affirming traditional understanding of marriage. All right, Matthew five seventeen. He says, you know, I quoted this verse last day in our last session or yesterday. Um, Jesus upheld the Torah, okay? He upheld the law of Moses. He upheld the Old Testament. It is unthinkable, okay, that Jesus, an ancient first century Jewish rabbi, would be like, oh yeah, homosexuality, that's that's a good thing, right? No, every Jewish rabbi in that cultural context believed that homosexuality was a sin, Okay? This idea that Jesus was the enlightened Jewish rabbi who really knew, and so he chose never to talk specifically about homosexuality. It's like, dude, give me a break. Give me a break. At the, at, that's not evidence, okay? That's not evidence. Just because Jesus never talked about it is not evidence, okay? And number two, 
the strong the argument I hear all the time is that Paul did not intend to condemn monogamous committed homosexual relationships. That in the Roman context, homosexual relationships were always promiscuous, right? That was the culture in Rome, okay? And there's some truth to that, that it, there was a lot of promiscuity in Roman sexual cultures, and there was a lot of, like, you know, Roman nobles sleeping with their young male slaves and stuff like that. But again, that is an argument from science. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything like that. Okay, that's you're creating a context to imply what you think Paul meant by that. But again, Paul was a Pharisee, all right? Paul was a Pharisee. They none of those guys believed that homosexuality was not sinful. And Paul is very, you know, specific in his condemnation of this particular sin. Okay? And look, I I just think if you're going to a church and they're making arguments for why the Bible condones or accepts homosexuality, I think that's a good sign you should leave that church. Okay? Like, I, the, the argument is not strong. And hear me, I'm open to arguments, okay? I'm open to arguments about women's roles in the church. I'm open because there are valid arguments to some of these things. I am not open to the argument that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. It is extremely clear from my perspective, okay? Now, I will say this about transgenderism, all right? There is this narrative out there right now that the reason why transgender people, you know are killing themselves, and it's it's really bad, okay? If you've ever walked in life with a transgender person, what you should know about the community is that they have a 40% attempted suicide rate, okay? That is the worst attempted suicide rate of any people group, except for Jews living in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. They also had a 40% attempted suicide rate, okay? That's the equivalent. What we have, if you're, if you're transgender, you're struggling with suicide in the same way that a Jew living in a concentration camp struggles with suicide. Okay, that statistic is true both before and after any kind of conversion surgery. Okay, whether you convert to you know having sex change surgery, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change your happiness. Okay, and that's the big lie. The big lie today is like you know the reason why gay people hate themselves and why transgender people hate themselves. It's because of the Christians, right? It's because of straight oppression right? It's because of these oppressive ideologies that hate them and make them feel bad about themselves. And I, can I just say that it's simply not true. It is simply not true, okay? It is simply not true. Many people who struggle with same-sex attraction, when they confess and talk about it in the church, they receive love and affection and acceptance, okay? I'll tell you, for me, when I was in high school, I remember I just, you know, started to learn to hear from God. This was late in high school. And I had a friend and, um, you know, I was like hanging out with him. He was a, he was a friend from school and he was a Christian and we started getting closer. And one day he, he was like, Hey Dennis, I just feel like I need to tell you something. And I was like, you struggle with, with homosexuality. And he's like, and he had that really scared look on his face, you know, he had that really scared look on his face. And I was like, brother, I love you, man. I love you. Right. And we're, and we're homies. Right. And that's what I've seen over and over again. Okay. I, I had a friend, um, I went on a missions trip to Kazakhstan and I ministered um, to a guy out there and he ended up moving to the United States. And um, at this point he was fully in the lifestyle. We met at a gay bar in San Francisco. Okay. I met with him at a gay bar in San Francisco with all of his, it was a gay convention he was at in San Francisco. Right. I met with him at a gay bar with all his gay friends at the gay convention. Right. And, um, and, but I, he had remembered, I had ministered to him, you know, the love of the Lord when we were in Kazakhstan together. And I, and I just told him, Brother, God loves you so much. I started prophesying over him, telling him about how much God loves you. He starts to weep, right, in the in the gay bar, right? 
And like, and I've seen that consistently over and over again. The church's response to those who struggle with same-sex attraction is to affirm that God loves them, right? And that's the truth, okay? That is the truth. But what we're dealing with, in my opinion, is a spirit of rejection. Okay, what we're dealing with, in my opinion, is a spirit of rejection. If I could put my finger on one thing that a lot of people who struggle with same-sex attraction have, it's rejection from a same-sex parent, right, or relative, a traumatic feeling of a rejection or abandonment, okay, and it's some aspect of sexual molestation, right, or abuse. Again, I'm not trying to say every, we know for sure that everyone who struggles with it has had those things. That's what I'm saying. I'm just saying I've seen that pattern again and again, okay? I think... Generally speaking, people who struggle with same-sex attraction very easily feel rejected in general, okay? And so when I, you know, when somebody tells me that they're struggling with same-sex attraction, I always got them away to really try and, and, and build them up with a spirit of affirmation, okay? And if I had to say, how do, you, how do you minister, you know, to this issue, okay? How do you minister to this issue? I think spiritual fathering is one of the keys to this thing. I really do. In fact, when we're talking about this entire generation that is struggling with feeling rejected, right, by their parents, feeling abandoned by their parents, I think the answer is spiritual fathering in the church. I believe the Lord wants to raise up a church that really cares for people and commits to them. It's able to walk with them through their junk, okay? I had a spiritual mom when I was in college, all right? She was very large black lady. She's the best, right? And she would just, you know, she would just, oh yeah, you know Vera, yeah. Um, and, you know, I remember one time, you know, she was she was meeting with somebody and she was telling the story and, you know, this person just started, you know, cussing like crazy because she was like expressing her pain, you know, and she's just cussing and cussing and cussing and Vera was like, mm-hmm, just let it out, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> listen, you know, and the thing is, we need people that understand people's weaknesses, right? We need spiritual fathers and mothers that understand people's weaknesses and can walk with them through it, okay? Because look, when you're dealing with people who have grown up, uh, up in broken homes, grown up with sexual abuse, grown up with trauma, you can't put an expectation on them like they've been Christians for 30 years, okay? We're dealing with broken people, all right, that have real heart longings and desires, all right, and the need for the church is to be able to walk with those people. I'm not saying that you condone or accept their sin, but you don't have to, right? You don't have to accept their sin. Most of the time, they know it's wrong, you know? Like, they know, they have an inner witness, they know it's wrong, but they need people that will genuinely feel affection and love for them, even in the midst of their sin. Does this make sense? Okay? And I'm convinced that this is a huge part of it. Like, we can't have churches that don't care about people, all right? We can't have churches that are just bureaucratic organizations and they, you know, they stick you into a, you know, a five-step plan for their Bible study and there's no mother or father that cares for you. Am I making sense? And I'm, I'm simply saying this because my desires for you as young Christian leaders that your ambition would not be to be a famous minister but to be a father or a mother. I pray that that would be your, the ambition of your life, to learn to truly care for people. And it, I, can I just tell you, it's much harder because all you need to be famous is a great gift. Okay? Look, I can sing. Some of you guys have heard me sing, right? I got offered jobs to lead worship for large churches because they really liked my voice, right? If you have a certain kind of gift, they'll put you on a stage and they'll say go, right? 
And I just think, you know, we tend to look at that and be like, man, I wish I had that. That's so awesome. That's so cool. And I just want to say that is not what God values. He doesn't value the same things that we tend to value as people, right? And I pray that you guys would have that heart because, look, there are so many broken young people growing up, and you guys know you guys are struggling through your own brokenness, I'm sure, right? We need people that will grow up to be spiritual fathers and mothers because I'm convinced that is that is the thing that so many people need, all right? Somebody, a young, a young man struggling with same-sex attraction needs a spiritual father that will love him, right? That will love him and value him, not just for a season, right? But for the rest of his life, that he can be there, right? Be counselor for him, okay? So yeah, how do you minister to this issue? Number one, I already, I already mentioned the fathering to me is such an important part of it, okay? Do not identify as gay, okay? I always warn people, do not identify as gay, okay? I, I say, hey, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, that's fine. All right, do not believe the lie that you are more cursed than others, okay? Do not believe that lie, all right? Here, here's a newsflash for you guys, okay? Life is hard, okay? I promise you, I promise you, it doesn't matter how privileged a situation you grew up in, you're going to come to a place where life gets really hard because it's hard for everyone, okay? It really is. It's hard for everyone, okay? You're going to run into serious betrayal. You're, you're going to run into the realities of like a marriage that's really difficult. You're going to run into the fact that you don't know how to love your kids as well as you know you should love them. You're going to run into so many financial issues and worries. You're going to run into lots of difficulties in life. I promise you, life is hard for everybody, okay? I counsel people for a living. I'll tell you, man, I've heard the craziest stories, all right? Everyone that I know has, you know, that has really walked with the Lord for a long period of time has gone through such incredible heartbreak and difficulty in their lives, all right? This is why scripture says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near, right? That's speaking of, it's not that much longer until judgment day, right? It's not that much longer until you're going to see him. And from the Bible's perspective, your 70-year life is a vapor, because it is. From the perspective of eternity, your 70-year life is over like that, okay? The Lord is near, okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, present your request to God, right? With thanksgiving, Right? This, is the, this is the heart. The Bible trains us to be thankful, to focus on the blessings in our lives because the temptation for all of us is to look at all of our weaknesses, all of our problems, all the ways that that person seems to be more blessed than me. And then what that will do is it will kill your joy, it'll kill your faith, it'll kill your ability to get free and to make progress and to mature. Does this make sense? Never identify with your weaknesses, okay? Your weaknesses are not who you are. When people ask about their identity, this is the best way that I know to explain it. Your identity is who you are a million years from now. Okay? In the age to come, all right, when you are perfected in Christ, all right, that's who you really are. That's the person you're becoming. The person you are right now with all of your problems, and this is not who you really are. This is the person you're leaving. Does this make sense? Okay? Don't identify with your strongholds. It's okay to be like, yeah, I, I struggle with this. That's good. Right, it's good to be like, yeah, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, I have this weakness, that's fine. As long as you understand the person that God's calling you to be and you want to identify with that person. That's the person I truly am. That's the person that God is making me, okay? All right, I'm just going to be real. I think everyone should surrender to celibacy, 
Okay? And what I mean by that is if the Lord says, hey, I would like you to be celibate, our response is yes, sir. Okay? All right? Now, I say that because when I was, you know, in college, I studied the scriptures and I read some of these passages where it seemed to say that it's better to be celibate. I don't know if you guys have read those passages, right? I read those passages in colleges and I, and I was like, <gasps> right? And I said, Lord, if you want me to be celibate, I will be celibate, right? For two years of my life, I thought that God might really be calling me to celibate. I didn't hear it, but I felt so convicted by those passages that I felt like maybe this is the Lord's will for me, all right? And I surrendered to it and I was crying. Okay, I was crying. I was like, yo, Lord, if you want me to be celibate, right? Right? And then two years later, the Lord spoke to me and said, it's wiser for you to get married, all right? And I said, okay, all right, I'll get married. But the truth is this. I think everyone should surrender to celibacy, okay? And because there's this, there is this accusation. Why should, you know, if somebody who struggled with same-sex attraction, right, what if they can't get free? Why should they have to be single and not you straight person? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know what kind of Christianity you're from. All right, the Christianity that I know is that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Okay, it's not I who live; it's Christ who lives in me. Meaning, I don't have. I don't. I don't have the luxury of being to say I want to be a doctor, right? Or I want to do this, or I want to do that, right? Obviously, I want to do a lot of things, but my life is surrendered as a slave to Christ. Why? Because in this life, I will have tribulation, okay? The scriptures are clear about that. You're going to have trouble in this life. You're going to have trials. I always tell this to people, but the glory that the scriptures promise is not for this age, okay? I know when you're young, every prophetic word is like, God's going to promote you, and you're going to be great, and you're going to do all this crazy stuff. And see, all of that's true. But the part you have to hear is, in the next life, <laughs> right? In the next life, Okay. And I say that because, look, Jesus' calling was to be king of kings. That is not what his life looked like. Okay? That's not what his life looked like. All right? Peter's calling is to be great. That dude got crucified upside down. Right? John the Baptist called the greatest among women. Dude, God could have set him free from that prison. Right? And I think that's what he was hoping for. Right? When he... Are you the one? <laughs> right? Jesus quotes the, the, the prophecy. If, you, if you're familiar with that passage, he leaves out the part where it says, talks about setting the captives free. Right? It's actually a coded message to John, right? Saying that he will not leave prison. Right? And he's, and he's killed in prison. If you don't have faith, then what happens is you see all of that as God's failure to show up in your life. When in fact, all of those things are God's plan to promote you. Right? That's from everything we talked about yesterday, right? God wants to promote you, meaning he wants to build you up with such faith that you can demonstrate great faith in the midst of great testing, okay? And if you do that, Peter says that that type of faith, the type that's tried in, in through the fire, right, is, is precious to the Lord, okay? So that's why I simply say, surrender to celibacy, that removes a lot of the fear, Right? In your life, though, maybe I'll never find somebody. All that kind of stuff. Surrender to celibacy. Right? You say, Lord, if you want me to do it, I will do it. I'm going to follow you, and I trust you with my life. Okay? And the reality is you're going to suffer in this life. Okay? Your spouse will not be the glorious person that you imagine. All right? Every man imagines like, oh, yeah, my wife's going to want to sleep with me every night. Newsflash, it don't work like that, especially after you have a baby. All right? Do not work like that. Okay? Your spouse is not going to be the perfect person that you imagine. Okay? And that's not a necessarily bad thing. 
Okay? Guess what? You ain't going to be the perfect person for your spouse. That's the, that's the other part of this. All right? And that's okay. That's okay. We're all imperfect. And guess what? The glory is for the next life. The glory is for the next life. Don't idolize your marriage. I know several people whose, whose spouses have left them for other people. Okay? It happens. I always say it only takes one person to, to ruin a marriage. And it's true. Okay? Dude, there's there's been... Gr- great high profile men and women of God who've had their spouses leave them for other people. I'm telling you, it can happen. And I don't say that to to provoke fear in your heart. I tell you because look, in this life, you're going to have trial and trouble. I don't know how it's going to hit you, but what I'm saying is that you can't get the idea out of your mind that God's plan for your life is like the most glorious earthly life that anyone's ever had. Okay. You got to get that out of your mind. No, God's plan for life is that you would have such an incredible faith that you can have joy and peace in the midst of going through hell on earth. Okay? That's God's glorious plan for your life. Because the glory is for the next life. Okay? Because then you get glorified forever. Okay? I don't know about you. That's the dream of my life. God, give me the kind of faith that can withstand great great testing. In Jesus' name. All right? Okay, number four. Partial freedom is real freedom. All right, there is this lie that if you don't go from gay to straight completely, God didn't do anything, okay? That is simply not true, okay? I know many people who've struggled with all kinds of sin issues, all right, throughout the course of their life, throughout the course of their life. They never got full freedom in this particular area, okay? Sometimes it happens like that, all right? I still struggle with stuff, okay? That's part of this thing. Partial freedom is real freedom. Partial freedom is real freedom. Okay? In this life, you're always you're you're never going to get rid of all your weaknesses. Okay? Now, I need to also put the caveat, but you can get a lot of freedom in a lot of different areas. Okay? When let me let me put it like this. When I was in when I was in um, my freshman year in college, when I would when I would struggle with lust, I would feel so condemned about it that I would repent for like 10 minutes. Did I tell you guys the story? I don't remember if I told you guys the story. I'd repent for like, you know, 10 minutes. And one day I had a vision. In the vision, there was a great pillar in front of me and it had the word lust written on it. And in my hands, I had an ax and I had like a, a hammer. And I was trying with all my heart to destroy this pillar in my life, right? And in the vision, I'm like trying to destroy it with everything. And I get exhausted and I look at the pillar and there's like the smallest little scratch on the pillar, right? And I'm like, I feel so defeated, right? I'm looking at this vision. And then the camera moves back and I'm in a gigantic room that's filled with pillars everywhere, right? There's like so many pillars all over the place. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, Dennis, you're so worried about this one sin. But I see all the sins in your life, (laughs) right? Okay, all right. And my point is this. This is a tactic of the enemy. The enemy will try to get you to fixate on one particular sin issue in your life and make you feel like that that issue is your whole life. Does that make sense? If I'm doing well in that one issue, I'm doing well in general. If I'm doing bad in that issue, I'm doing bad in general. Okay? A lot of that is shame. Shame says that you've got to get right. You've got to get perfect before you can receive affection from me. Right? But God says, no, come to me just as you are. Okay? And I'll take you just as you are, and then I'll make you like me as you behold me, right? As we behold him, we're changed from glory to glory. Does this make sense? 
All right, so this is this is an important thing. Partial freedom is real freedom. Don't get hung up. Like, this this is part of the problem. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, I have news for you. You struggle with a lot of other things too, okay? There's tons you struggle with, okay? Your whole life does not come down to one issue, all right? And the truth is, what the Lord was telling me is like, he told me, like, I'm not dealing with this particular issue in your life right now. I'm dealing with a lot of other stuff, okay? And that was important. And the Lord said, if you, if you struggle, if you fall to lust, repent for 10 seconds and then start to declare how much I love you, all right? And that, that was really important for me because I used to repent for like 10 minutes, right? You guys ever done that? Like, I'll never do this again, God. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I should know better by now. The truth is no. If you, if you didn't know better, you would know better. You don't know better, right? Does that make sense? That's actually pride. I didn't realize it, but it's pride that makes you feel like you should be more mature than you are. Does that make sense? No, you are as mature as you are, <laughs> right? And the truth is that, like, that's okay, right? That's okay. Like, if you're struggling with something, that's okay, right? Okay. All right, I already mentioned mentorship. That's a big one, right? I think, like, look, people who struggle with same-sex relations, they need an older same-sex mentor that would love them and walk with them, okay, in life. All right, and then lastly, I do recommend different deliverance and freedom ministries. StephenBlack.org, you can look. He's, um, he's got a ministry, but there's a number of them out there, okay? All right, last time I'm gonna finish up with abortion, just a little bit in pornography, just to finish this off, and then we'll take any questions, okay? All right, here's what we have to understand about abortion. We've got 42 million babies killed in 2018. That's about 50 million a year, okay? And abortion happens because of illicit sexual activity. I already, I already spoke on this, all right? You guys understand, that's the reason why we're fighting this abortion thing. It's because people are protecting their sexual freedom, okay? And I do believe the next world war and will be judgment for abortion. Because here's the issue. What if, what if in God's eyes, they're people? <laughs> like, do you understand? Uh, let me just say something. This is the irony. In our culture today, there is absolute hatred for those that viewed Africans as not being fully human. There's absolute hatred for that today. And it's the greatest hypocrisy from the Lord's perspective. Right? Because we are, the greatest oppression in history is unborn babies. We are living right now in the greatest oppression that's ever happened in human history. And what we have is we have an entire culture that is complaining about the oppression done to their ancestors while they are oppressing. They are the greatest oppressors in history. Does this make sense of the incredible hypocrisy? Like, yeah, we deserve judgment, okay? That's the truth. We deserve judgment, okay? And lastly, I'll say this about pornography. Pornography is killing the boldness in the church, Okay, we can't speak out boldly because we are compromised and open to attacks of shame. This is the nature of sexual sin. What it does is it defiles you in such a way that strips you of your confidence, your boldness. Okay, and that's why so many leaders are so silent because they're so afraid that they would be exposed. Okay, I, I tell people, look, do whatever you have to do. Okay, and look, you might fall into it. That's fine. Just get back up and start running, but do what you have to do to, to break off pornography. Okay. Like when I, it was easier when I was young, when I was in college, my first, my first three years of college, I had no internet in my house. None. Got rid of that sucker. Right. That was, that was glory. Right. I didn't struggle with pornography when I was in, when I, my first three years of college, I didn't struggle with it because I didn't have it. <laughs> right. Like 
It's hard to do that now because everybody's got a smartphone, right? And you have data that goes everywhere and all this kind of stuff. You have to set up systems of accountability. Don't have a rule that you leave your phone and your tablet and your laptop in the living room. Whatever. Like, do what you need to do. Move, like, get a desktop and move it out into the living room. Like, do whatever you got to do to cut off the temptation. Do you know what I mean? Like, for me, later on, I got, like, accountability software, right? Whenever, like, I go into any questionable website, it would immediately email the URL to my wife. (laughs) Right? Like... Right? Like, you got to do what you got to do, right? Again, it's harder today because there's so much technology now, right? It's harder, but I just say, do what you got to do. It will increase your boldness, all right? It will increase your boldness, and we need that. The, the church radically needs bold believers who aren't afraid and aren't open to intimidation, okay? All right, and lastly, accountability and boundaries. Look, you can have this mentality, oh, you know, I struggle with that, and I'll never struggle with that again, Get out of here, okay? There's a reason why we have so many high-profile leaders who are falling to sexual temptation and stuff like that. You've got to have boundaries, okay? You got to have boundaries, all right? When I was pastoring, I have I have a rule: I don't meet one-on-one with any girl more than once a month. That was one of my simple rules, right? And I thought that was good because you need to you have to develop those in, that intimacy for those feelings to arise and stuff like that. And I always meet in a semi-public place, right, where people can see. Does this make sense? You set up boundaries like that to keep yourself from temptation. Because look, you might be able to resist temptation the first 10 times. Does that make sense? But if you keep putting yourself into, into positions of temptation, can you handle the 50th time you're tempted, right? Can you handle the 60th time you're tempted? No, what you want to do is you want to set up accountability so that you're not in those situations of temptation. Am I making sense? Okay. I used to challenge my college kids and be like, I'm looking for a dumb phone revolution, right? Where all people go, hey, you know, I don't need this freaking temptation with me all the time. I'm just going to go back to one of those flip phones, <laughs> right? I, I want to see a dumb phone revolution, okay? I don't know if any of my kids ever did it, but just this idea of I've got, I've got to cut off this thing if it's debilitating, and if it's something that is constantly derailing me in my walk with God, and it's robbing me of my boldness, okay? By the way, I just want to say this. You have to have boldness to follow the Spirit of the Lord, okay? Boldness is the number one manifestation in the scriptures of the filling of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is bold, and this is the problem because we don't understand if we're going to follow the Spirit, we have to learn to follow the provocations of boldness that come upon us. And the thing that does it, if, we, if we're defiled, what happens is we just keep saying no to the Spirit, right? The Spirit will give you a, an unction or something bold. You're like, uh, no, <laughs> right? And, and I'm not saying that that's like a terrible thing to do that, but that becomes lifestyle where you get used to saying no, 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 no right? No, we want to be the opposite. We want to be sensitive. Like, Spirit, is that you, right? Could that be you calling me to do this thing, right? And that boldness is really important if we're going to follow the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, pause there. I want to take some questions. Any questions about any of this? Yes. I think it's best to understand World War I and World War II is being connected. I think there's part of the same war. It's just, there was kind of an intermediate period and then it ramped up, something like that, okay? Um, but I think the, the better one to look at is the Civil War, okay? And the reason why is because the Civil War was, was very clearly a judgment from the Lord for the sin of slavery, all right? I think David mentioned this to you guys before. I thought, I thought I heard him. But Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, was very explicit, right? God is judging our nation for the sin of slavery, all right? And that's because all throughout the Second Great Awakening, the preachers were warning that if we didn't abolish slavery, there would come judgment, right? 
And I think we should understand slavery was the same essential issue. We were dehumanizing a people group, right? And we were exploiting and oppressing them in a very real way in that sense, okay? The exploitation and the oppression of abortion is far greater, right? It's far greater and it's international in its scope, right? So I think, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for serious judgment. You have to understand the way God works is one of the worst judgments that he can do is to not say anything, right? right? He lets you continue in your sin such that it gets so bad and then he puts the hammer down, okay? That's one of the worst judgments. We see that in scripture when he says, you know, let me alone, right? I'm gonna leave them in their sin for another season and let it grow because what he could do is send a strong rebuke, right? He could send a strong rebuke, send correction. I think the Lord has tried to bring correction on America, okay? But I think we've we've ignored it and a lot of it is because we've allowed so much Marxism into our system now that it's now discipled our entire way of thinking for lots of people now, right? So the whole idea that like God sent an earthquake, right? For example, what percentage of churches now would say, yeah, God sent that earthquake? At least in California, I guess maybe like 5% of churches, you know, like a very small amount of churches. And yet we see that the Bible is replete with this kind of thing, right? God sends earthquakes. The most common judgment that he sends is foreign armies, all right? He allows other people to invade and take your land. That is the most horrible judgment that can come upon a nation. But we see that over and over again in the scriptures. All right? I'm going to make the argument that God still does the same stuff today. All right? The, we, the reason why wars break out and stuff is because of judgment and whatnot. Good question. Any other questions? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. because what, what, Yeah, what, what we had with America was really interesting because even though God sent the Civil War as a judgment for slavery, um, it was not nearly a, as bad of a judgment. It was a discipline. I know it sounds terrible. It was 2% of Americans died in, in the Civil War, right? But we emerged from the Civil War greater than we were, right? And with firm conviction on what was right. That's a right discipline. And that's why our nation prospered after Civil War. Does that make sense? In, in a lot of ways, the, the Civil War was a lesser, lesser discipline than what would have happened if we didn't have a huge abolition movement. Does that make sense? What we're dealing with now, that that's why, you know, Lou's heart's so burdened for this Roe v. Wade thing and, you know, us putting a stop to abortion because, yeah, I think if we do that, then the 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 judgment will be far less severe. Like, I mean, we're talking about, like, we're talking about the potential destruction of America as a nation. You know, like, that seems, like, unthinkable to us, but... It, historically and theologically, it's totally within the realm of possibility, right? It's just, we can't, it's hard for us to imagine something like that, right? Because we've been so blessed by the Lord. Like, I, World War II, you could just see the hand of the Lord on our lives. Like, we we benefited from World War II like crazy, right? Not so the European nations. The European nations got demolished. Germany got demolished, right? Those nations got demolished, and I, and I think that was because they forsook the Lord, right? There's real discipline and judgment from the Lord on these things. And the problem is the church is so ignorant of all this stuff. You know, we don't talk about national discipline, national judgment, even though these are very biblical concepts. And I think that's a huge that's a huge problem, right? Um, I was telling someone the other day about the fear of the Lord. Like, when we planted the ark, we did it with a revelation of, you know, God's love and how we can rest in his, in his mercy and his grace. And then, you know, um, and then uh, David Kim heard from the Lord to start a house of prayer. I went and, you know, started doing it with them and supporting them. And the Lord started to speak to us about the fear of the Lord, 
right? And God started to convict my heart that I had underemphasized the fear of the Lord and overemphasized the grace and the mercy of God, right? And this is all related to that. It's not just me. It's most of the church today, right? There's not much understanding of the, of the fear of the Lord, right? And um, so I say, yeah, this, I, I think it's a, it's a real danger. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily use it in that context. My understanding is that this idea that God allows homosexuality to flourish amongst the people group, it's a corporate, it's a group judgment against the nation. So I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily interpret it as like everybody who struggles with same-sex attraction, it's a direct judgment against them for some reason per se. Um, but yeah, I, I would just, you know, when, when I counsel believers on this, it's more I take them through and just try and emphasize the way that, that Scripture universally condemns it, right? And... You know, depending on the person, sometimes you have to field some of those questions, and there's some others that, that pop up here and there. Um, but it, you can see where their heart's at, okay? If somebody is like, oh my gosh, like, because, like, I remember I when I started at the church I was at before, I did a seminar on homosexuality, and I started taking them through these verses, and man, I got the dirtiest looks. It's high school kids, right? Looking at me like, right, just angry. And I was like, has no one ever told you these Bible verses? And they're like, no, like we've never heard these verses before. And I was like, OMG. All right, well, let's go through it from the beginning, you know? And the thing is, you can, you can tell some people's heart, but once, once the kids heard it and heard the rationale and heard the heart behind it, their hearts opened up, right? And then they wrestled, and then they go into wrestle with it, you know? Um, it, some people will just be like, no, F you, and, like, you have a weird, you're a fundamentalist, all this kind of stuff, right? Those people, you know, don't even, don't even try to, to help them, right? Like, that's, that's biblical, by the way, okay? Um, don't give your pearls to pigs, right? Rebuke a scoffer or mocker, and he will, and he will attack you, is what scripture says, right? So you shouldn't try to help people who don't want help. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well, look, I've, I've walked with lots of people over the years who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they've been full members of the church and feel loved in the community, and it's been fine. You know what I mean? It's just one issue that they struggle with amongst lots of issues that people struggle with, right? So I don't think that it, I don't think it should necessarily be a special issue. The only reason it's a special issue is because it's become so accepted by culture today. Does that make sense? And because there's such a narrative in the culture, that's why we have to directly confront it in this sense. Um, but no, like most most people who struggle with it, you know, can find a, a great life in the church and in, and receive freedom as they continue to walk with the Lord, right? Now, I will say that in most of the people that I've ministered to, it's mostly partial freedom. Okay, like they they grow and that their desires aren't as strong as they used to be, right? And they, you know, and that's that's fine, right? Just be real. That's most people on most issues, right? They walk through and they get partial freedom and they get increasing freedom over the years. Okay, um, and look, now when we're talking about gay affirming churches, to me those are heretical churches. Okay, those are heretical churches, and the the passage to read is Second Peter two. Okay, Second Peter two talks about false teachers and specifically what it describes them is they they the way Jude puts it is they preach grace as a license for sin. Okay? And what they do is they they justify somebody in their sin, right? And they say it's okay. And and it, it's it's the harshest part of the New Testament. <laughs> okay. The scriptures are so harsh against false teachers who teach people that it's okay to practice sin. 
okay? And be in the Lord and teach that you can be in the Lord. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about how Paul says, you know, I think I mentioned this the other day, right? Like, woman's living with his, or sleeping with his mother-in-law, and, and Paul's like, you should put this person out of the church. Don't show this person grace in that sense. And again, you're dealing with a hardened, unrepentant heart, okay? If you're dealing with somebody who stumbled in sin, you restore such a one gently. If you're dealing with somebody who's hardened, and they refuse to acknowledge his sin, they refuse to repent, then you put them out of your fellowship, and you don't talk to them anymore. That's actually what the scripture says, right? You don't fellowship with that person anymore, right? Because if someone claims to be a believer and practices sin, they're in a position of open rebellion against the Lord, and now they become dangerous to the church, right? That's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, a little yeast leavens the whole lump, meaning that type of belief will spread in the church, right? And the problem with that is when you have sin abounding in the church, the spirit leaves, okay? So when the spirit leaves, we don't have power, we don't have miracles, we don't have the grace of God operating in the church, right? We want the opposite. We want holiness. Then we see lots of the spirit of the Lord operating in the church in power. Does that make sense? So that's the reason why God is very harsh against the rebellious attitude. This is the issue. The issue with God is not that you struggle with a particular sin. The issue is if you're self-righteous and rebellious and refuse to repent. Okay, that's usually a lot of people will tell me, oh, look, you know, you religious conservatives, don't you know Jesus is, Jesus hated the religious conservatives of his day? And I'm like, this again, you know? No, Jesus hated the self-righteous people of his day. That's you, fool. <laughs> that's what I want to say, right? Like, self-righteousness is when, like, I refuse to repent, right? Because even though the scripture tells me it's, it's wrong, I'm like, nah, it's wrong, it's not wrong. Like, Jesus was trying to rebuke them and they refuse and they try to rebuke him. All right, that's the problem. Self righteousness. God has a problem with self righteousness. Yes. Any questions? Any more? We're about done here. All right. Let me pray for you guys. Oh, oh. oh. Let me send the documents. Some some people ask for it. Well, I'm going to pray, and then I will give the documents to anybody who would like the documents. Okay. All right, Father. I thank you so much um, for these students, Lord God. Lord, I pray, oh God that you would give them the grace to stand in the time of testing, Lord. Father, I pray that you would give them a love for your word. They would be like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in its season, O God. Father, I pray that you give them understanding of the scriptures, Lord. Even though they're hard, God, I pray for spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know you in the hope of your calling, O God. Father, I pray that you would give them grace to become great leaders in the body of Christ, Lord. Father, not necessarily famous, not necessarily well-respected per se, but Father, I pray that you would make them people that truly love like you love, Lord God. And Father, that stand for righteousness and for your word, Lord. And Father, we just confess that all of us struggle with many things, Lord. But Father, I pray that you would encourage us in our walks, that you would give us grace to overcome in this season. Lord, help us, and we put all of our hope in you, Lord, and we thank you for being so faithful to us, Lord God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for dying for us, Lord, and thank you for the calling and the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.